Who was your childhood hero? Maybe it was the Lone Ranger for some of you, or I don't know, Judy Garland, somebody like that. Maybe it was a sports hero like Rex Kearns or, or Jerry Lucas, Jim Brown. If you're my age, it was probably somebody like Pete Rose or Mark Price, Bernie Kosar, people like that. But I remember even before those childhood heroes, there was the, 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 the ones that we, we idolized, we wanted to be like when we grow up. We, we would say, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a, and, and then we'd fill in the blank, you know, I want to be a police officer. That was a big one. Or firefighters. Anybody remember being wanting to be a firefighter? I remember kids would have wanted to be astronauts when I was young. Oh, I want to be an astronaut. I wonder if anybody wants to be astronauts anymore, do you think? I, I don't hear much of that around kids, but... You know, always that's something I want to be somebody like. My, my uncle was a, a volunteer firefighter. And so he would take us down to the station and we'd get up on the big trucks, the tanker trucks, and they'd take us rides around the block, you know, and we'd get to explore inside the back of the ambulance. And, oh, you know, I wanted to be a firefighter. I thought that'd be great. But more than firefighters or, or sports athletes or anybody like that, for me, there was this one special person. I wanted to be like him more than anybody in the whole wide world. His name was Evil Knievel. Do you remember Evil Knievel? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, Evil Knievel was huge. Yeah, he was this daredevil who would jump anything with a motorcycle. He would jump, I mean, one time he jumped 15 Mustangs. He landed and broke his leg. Anybody remember? And another time, he jumped 13 buses in London. And when he crashed, he broke his pelvis. But he came back five months later and jumped 14 buses at King's Island. You remember that? This guy was crazy. And I loved him. I, he, his, his biggest dream was to jump the Grand Canyon. He wanted to be the first person to jump the Grand Canyon on a motorcycle. Well, goodness, I just ate that up. The government wouldn't let him do it, though. And I was angry at the government at five years old. Why won't they let him jump the, the Grand Canyon? But he jumped the Snake River Canyon. Because they wouldn't let him. So he got out on a supercharged motorcycle that was like had a steam boiler in it or something. And went across and it didn't make it all the way to the other side. And fortunately there was a parachute. And he he went down to the bottom of of the canyon and had some injuries. But oh man I wanted to be like this. I wanted to be Evil Knievel in the worst way. But that's a kid's dream isn't it? I mean, that, that's not an adult dream. That's not, that's not what people, you know, when a, when, when a kid comes up to a parent and says, you know, I want to be a, a, a daredevil, I want to be a, a stuntman, you know, like, oh, yeah, that would be fun, nice. You know, we don't really take that seriously. Because those people are insane, aren't they? They jump canyons. People don't do that who are sane. If you're sane, you go to med school or law school or, or business school or you become a carpenter or a plumber. Or t- that's what sane people do. Insane people get on motorcycles and jump over canyons. And you always hope that your children will grow up to be sane, to be rational. That's what we want. We want rational people, not crazy ones. We know that when a kid says, oh, I want to grow up and be a stuntman, we know that she or he's probably going to wear surgical scrubs or a clerical collar or something like that because this is what sane people do. They don't do insane things like jump stuff with motorcycles. Although it does still sound like fun, I have to admit. Jeremiah is a prophet. And unfortunately for Jeremiah, he gets called by God before he's old enough to be sane. And so he has all these sort of, you know, ridiculous uh, demands that are placed on him by God. For instance, in the passage that was read earlier, he hears God saying to him, 
I imagine it goes something like this, probably in his voice, probably not an audible voice, but probably in his head he hears this voice that goes something like this, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the pottery barn. Um, now, for those of us who have been drug around the pottery barn a time or two, this not only sounds um, not like a, not a lot of fun, it does sound a bit crazy, right? Uh, I, I can imagine Jeremiah in his head saying, the pottery barn, really, God? I mean, this is where you want me to go? You want me to go down to the pottery shop? Yeah, Jeremiah, when you get down there, God says to him, I have something I want to tell you. Well, miracle of all miracles is that Jeremiah actually goes to the pottery barn to see what it is that God's going to tell him. Like I said, I've been drug around those things a time or two, and I'll do anything to keep from going. And so he does. But can you imagine the little conversation that's going on in his head as he's on his way down to the pottery shop? I mean, he's got to be thinking, I must be stark raving mad. You know, God is telling me to go to the pottery shop. I mean, if God had said, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the temple, that makes sense, right? Jeremiah, I want you to go feed starving people. Sure, God, love to do it. Jeremiah, I, I want you to go somewhere, this holy man, and pray. Yeah, but a pottery barn? I want you to go to the outlet where they sell salad bowls, and, and I want you to go there, and I'm going to talk to you there. But he does. He goes. Now, I, I should just pause here and tell you a little bit about the world in which Jeremiah lives. Jeremiah lives in Israel. Israel is, is a theocracy. It is a country that is supposed to run with God as king. Now, it doesn't actually do this. And it, in fact, it, it violates all the co- covenants that, that God had made with the people. This is a situation where the rich were oppressing the poor. They were actively oppressing those who live in poverty. There was for, they were forcing people into slavery. Family life was completely broken down. The, the, the relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children were a mess. And, and Jeremiah is told by God, I've already taken the northern ten tribes into exile. And Jeremiah, your job. Your job is to go to these southern two tribes and you tell them they're next. Hey, you know, nobody wants to be a prophet of doom, do they? I mean, this is not a good job. It's not one that he's looking forward to. He probably thinks, I'm going to get fired from this job. These people are going to, and they do. They do want to fire him. In fact, the truth of the matter is, they end up probably martyring him. He's most likely killed by his own people. He's called a traitor. He's called godless. He's called all sorts of things. In this day, he receives a word from the Lord. Go down to the pottery barn. I've got something to tell you when you get there. I kind of think about him walking in this. For me, it's a little shop. Isn't it? you know, I mean, it's not really that big of an operation. It's probably like a, you know, a, a little shop. And he, and he walks in. And, you know, a little bell rings. You know, is he walking in? You can see that, can't you? And, and he walks in. And, and you know he's probably feeling really awkward. I mean, it's like... A, I, I don't know, guys. Tell the truth. You don't know what you're looking for when you go there, do you? And, and so he walks in, and he's looking around, and, you know, salad bowls and pitchers and cups, and he's probably thinking, what in the world am I doing here? I mean, this has got to be one of the most bizarre things ever. And, and so the little guy who's in the corner, the guy who owns the pottery barn, he comes over to him and says, you know, what a shop owner would say, may I help you? You know, is there something I can sell you is what he's probably thinking. Jeremiah is probably like, um, you know, kind of looking for a salad bowl maybe. I'm thinking a scarlet and gray one with a big black O on the side of it. Something like that would be nice. I can imagine him stalling for time, right? God, you told me to come here, that you had something to say to me when I got here. I'm here, 
say something. But it probably doesn't happen right away. The, the pottery owner, the potter, I mean, he, the owner of the little shop, he, he's taking Jeremiah around. Well, look, here's some bowls. We only make them in brown. You know, there's not a lot of choices. Here, here's a cup, you know, here's a beer stein. Want one of these? Get something. Buy something for heaven's sakes. I've got work to do. And it was probably it's something like that that the, that the owner realized, I'm not going to sell this guy anything. And so he went back to work. This is the way I see it happening. Do you see it happening this way too? And I think that Jeremiah probably looked over at this guy who's making this pottery on a wheel. You've seen this happen before, haven't you? Where they spin this wheel and they got this big lump of clay on the, on the, on the wheel and, and they start to shape it. And it's, pretty soon it starts to take a shape of a bowl. And that's the point when God speaks. He says to Jeremiah right there in the pottery barn, look at that man sitting at the wheel making that bowl. Do you see that, Jeremiah? Yeah, I see it. That's what I'm like. I think Jeremiah probably thought, that's really odd. You're like that? What do you mean you're like that? Well, this is the way I'm doing. I'm in control of that of the, of the nations of the earth in the same way that that potter is in control of that lump of clay. And this is the point when I think that the, wee, the little uh, bowl that the potter is making starts to get out of shape. It starts to warp a little bit. And the potter stops and he looks at it and he says, rats, or something like that. And, um, and, and then he smashes it down into a, a lump of clay again. And he starts all over. God speaks to Jeremiah again. And he says, Jeremiah, did you see how the potter just destroyed that bowl? I saw that, Lord. That's exactly what I can do to the nation, to the people who do not do what what pleases me. Those who refuse to live in a way that pleases me, I can do that to them. I can make them however I want them. If they turn out in a way that's pleasing to me, the artisan, then I will bless them. They will be honored. But if they don't turn out in a way that pleases me, I can just make them back into a lump of clay and start all over again. I think the the Lord has a word for us today too, doesn't he? It's a a word to us as, as individuals. Listen, it matters how we live our lives. It matters what kind of people we are. God cares about what kind of husbands and wives, sons and daughters. God cares about what kind of grandparents and neighbors and citizens we are. God is interested in the way that we live our lives individually. Our choices, our decisions, the way that we carry out our lives matter. Not just to us, not just in the here and now, but to God. But it's more than that. It's nationally. Did you catch the words in the, in the lesson? The nations, God said. The nations that please me. I think that still applies to us today. It applied to Assyria. It applied to Babylon. It applied to the pagan nations of Jeremiah's day. It applies, I think, to our country today. Can the United States say, as uh, the, the French historian um, uh, de Tocqueville said, he says this in, in his uh, 18th, uh, or, excuse me, 19th century account of the United States of America. He writes, almost all the sects in the United States are are comprised within the great unity of Christianity. And Christian morality is everywhere the same. This is what he says of us in the 19th century. He goes on and says, in the United States, 
The sovereign authority is religious. In the 19th century, a French historian comes to the United States, investigates the country, looks at us and says, you know what I find in the United States? That religion is king. He says, there is no country in the whole earth in which Christian religion retains a greater influences over the souls of people than in America. That's what a Frenchman said of the United States in the 19th century. There's another passage that's also attributed to the same Frenchman, though it's a bit suspect as to whether he wrote it or not. But he went on to say, I sought for the greatness of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it wasn't there. I sought for her greatness and genius in her fertile fields and her boundless forests, and it wasn't there. In her rich mines and her vast world of commerce, and it wasn't there either. I sought for her her greatness and her genius in her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it wasn't there. It was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand her genius and her power. America is great, he wrote in the 19th century, because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. It matters what kind of decisions we make as a people. It matters the direction of our country. God cares about us as individuals, but he cares about us as a corporate uh, entity, as a nation. And goodness begets God's blessing, so says Jeremiah. And evil begets God's judgment. Our choices matter. But they don't just matter on a personal level. They don't just matter on a national level. I think one way that we ought to remember that they matter is on an ecclesiastical level as well, right? It matters what kind of church we are. It matters what kind of church we become. The way that we operate ourselves as a a body of Christ in the world. We've seen entire denominations hijacked, taken over. People who love to be called Father and Reverend and Your Grace and Bishop and all the other things. And yet they don't even... They don't even obey the very scriptures that they read in their churches Sunday after Sunday. I think if it's true of an individual and if it's true of a nation, as St. Peter says, judgment will begin with the very household of God. That it begins with the church as well. A faithful church begets the blessing of God. And an unfaithful one, the judgment of God. It matters. It matters the choices that we make. There's a story about this guy. His name was Old Pete, the story goes. And Old Pete was perhaps the most famous fisherman in all the area. Every time he would go out fishing, he would come in with this large haul of fish. Other people would go out fishing, and they'd only bring back three or four. But, but Pete, he would bring back stringers of them. And so he'd go out all the time, and people just wondered, how is it that Old Pete is such a great fisherman? And one day he was getting into his boat, getting ready to head off, and the game warden was there. And he said, I'm going to ride with you today, Pete. I want to see how it is that you do all your fishing. Pete looked at him and said, sure, jump in. So he took him to this kind of deserted cove in a big lake. The game warden sat back, leaned back against his chair, thought he was just going to watch this fisherman in action. About that time, old Pete opened up his tackle box, and he pulled, pulled out a stick of dynamite. He lit it and threw it into the lake. Boom! Underneath. And all these fish floated to the top. And so he took out his net and he started scooping them up. And the game warden says, you can't do that. Now that's illegal, Pete. 
You're going to get fined. I'm going to throw you in jail. You're going to be in all kinds of trouble. Pete didn't say anything. He just opened up his tackle box again, pulled out another stick of dynamite, lit it, and threw it in the game warden's lap. He said, are you going to sit there complaining or are you going to fish? (laughs) We have choices to make, don't we? How are we going to act? Because the choices are ours to make. But it is God's to reward accordingly. Amen.